Greetings and salutations, History Poppers. Welcome back. This is going to be our final episode on the analysis of six. And this was so exciting for me because I actually got to go and see it one more time while it was in St. Paul, Minnesota last night. So that was really exciting. I got to be there for the first show in St. Paul and one of the shows in the middle, which was super duper fun. And then one of the shows at the very, actually not one of the shows, the very last show. Uh, so that was really exciting. And uh, it's not often that random strangers will squeal with delight when you tell them about your dissertation topic and then ask you questions that you're like, oh, well, that's cool. People actually are interested in the things that I'm doing. Wow. So that was mind-boggling and amazing, and it was wonderful to get the chance to go and see the show one last time, at least here at the Ordway. I'm hoping to, in you know, when they start off in Broadway next year, to hopefully get the chance to go and see it again. I think that that would be absolutely fantastic. But, so this is going to be the last episode where we talk about six the musical songs. And then after this, I'm still working on editing it out, but I have a conversation that I kind of teased with you guys from last time uh, that I had with my BFF who came down and watched it with me. And it's interesting because he is a historian as well, just for a completely different specialty. He focuses on 19th century America and I focus on 16th and 17th century England. So two completely different uh, subspecialties in history, but he also comes at it from having some really interesting background and experience in uh, history interpretation as part of his job, as well as working in theater as a history and theater major in college. So it's a fantastic discussion. I had a lot of fun, at least, and so I'm working on getting that all taken care of. So it's either going to be one cast or two that are going to be popping up after this on our normal Friday posting schedule. Uh, but for now, today, we're going to be closing out with the uh, song I Don't Need Your Love, which is Kate Parr's, Kathy Parr's, <laughs> gold star for Kathy Parr, uh, Kathy Parr's song, and then the final rousing call uh, to herstory six there are no spoilers in history but there will be in this podcast stay tuned divorced beheaded died divorced Beheaded. Survived. And tonight, we are... Welcome back to our final episode of my solo analysis on six. So today we're going to be talking about two basically songs. There's two songs and then a remix of Mogo 6, but there's not really anything new that it brings to the table. So we get to the end of the show. And so we've had Catherine of Aragon take the reins from the very beginning and is very upset about the dissolution of the monasteries, by the way. Uh, and yeah, she totally would have been in real life as well. But so we have Catherine of Aragon who 
takes that from the very beginning. And, of course, like I've talked about before, each of the queens think that they've won. Uh, and Bolin is constantly talking about the fact that her head was separated from her body, which really kind of sucked. But she was kind of glad that Henry really liked her head. I don't know. Um, and then Jane Seymour comes in, and she is there and then she's dead and that was really sad and then we move on to house of holbein and then uh get down in which anna of cleves takes herself out of the running because she had a pretty great life <laughs> which we talked a little bit about as well so there were obviously some difficult points but overall she had a fantastic life uh and then we have kate howard's honestly devastatingly poppy number all you want to do and i love it because at the end of hers she goes through and uh, because kathy parr and she actually talks about herself as kathy parr which i enjoy so we have k howard Catherine of Aragon, and kathy parr um and so kathy parr decides that she doesn't want to do this and kate howard is going through and she's like Wow. Oh, no, this is actually the beginning of her song, before she jumps in, where she's like, yeah, survived. Hmm. Uh, and uh, how, you know, Catherine of Aragon, it must have been so difficult to almost be sent to a nunnery, and then not. That was almost difficult for you. <laughs> and then Anne Boleyn getting her head chopped off, and then she's like, divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded. Oh... Uh, Jane Seymour, I loved this. This was one of the, and it was one of the lines that actually got the most laughs from the audience. And Jane, dying of natural causes, when will justice be done? <laughs> that was great. And then going to Anna of Cleves and being like, but seriously though, it would really be difficult to be rejected for your looks. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, so we have her, her number, which ends with silence. And it's weird, interesting, because, like, I've been to three shows now, and each audience has their own relationship with that song. Hello, kitty cat. How do you do this? What are you doing? Uh-huh. Okay, did you want to come up on my lap for a little bit? Yeah. Sneeze. Come on. I already fed you. No, you come over here. I'm going to give you a laugh. Say hello to the people. Oh, listen to that purr. Are you all done now? Are you going to sit on my lap for a little bit? Ow, ow. Watch the claws, dude. Okay, hey, you can stay here. You can't go on the desk, but you can stay here with me. Okay. But anyway, so then we jump into Kathy Parr, and this is the major turning point of the show, when if you didn't know what was going on, you do now, and also this is like the surprise for people who don't necessarily... No, I said not on the desk. Uh, 
where it completely, it doesn't shift tone, but they kind of pull back the veil a bit, and they talk about how, oh no, if only we would have known from the beginning that we didn't want to actually compare ourselves, and how comparing us is really stupid, because we only have the one thing in common, which is Henry, and we are all so much more than that. And so Kathy Parr sings her songs, because, uh, you know, she needs to do her sob song as well, and in it, she sings about how I don't need your love. And she initially has to, she sets it up that she's writing a letter to her, the love of her life, Thomas Seymour, whose life does not end well. Uh, he dies a little bit after her. But anyway, so she's writing this letter to him about how, you know, Henry has chosen to make an unsuspecting woman his wife, and it was Kathy Parr. And so she has to marry the king. She has no choice in the matter, which honestly is accurate. And as much as she loves Thomas she, and she wanted to be with him, she just can't. Until something happens to Henry, and luckily Henry died. <laughs> yeah, luckily Henry died. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she doesn't have a choice. She has to marry Henry and she has to say goodbye to Thomas. And so that's kind of her sob story. But then I love it because then partway through, we have this moment where she's like, you know what? Screw this. And uh, even in the dialogue, you know, she's like, you know, why should that be the story? the one I have to sing about just to win this stupid competition. I'm out. That's not my story. There is so much more to me. And she talks about all of her accomplishments, about how she was a writer, which is true. And we talked about that in her historical background, that she uh, wrote books and psalms and meditations. She did. Uh, she fought for female education so that all of her ladies could independently study scripture and she even got a woman to paint her picture. And all of this is entirely true based off of the historical record. And it is this amazing turning point in the show by Kitty Cat where the queens all band together. Because up until this point, they had been, you know, separate. They've been working for themselves. They had been trying to win this competition, which now, whew, looking behind the curtain, it's all been fake to show us just how silly and insulting that is. And Anne Boleyn actually has this really fantastic line about how um, comparing the queens is uh, pushing forward and progressing this particular historical narrative that has been received down to us. And it is, it, it's problematic. And you know, she's like, I read. <laughs> <laughs> and it's entirely true. Comparing these women, putting them in a battle against each other is honestly what a lot of historians, if they've paid attention to them at all in anything besides simply being one of the wives of Henry VIII, that's what they've done. You know, who is the best queen, the most memorable queen? Uh, who did the most? And those aren't the questions that we need to ask when we are looking at these women's accomplishments in history. And uh, at the end of the song, too, she talks about how um, that without Henry, they all just disappear. 
And if you are looking at them in this comparative point of view where you are having them compete against one another, that's what happens. If you take Henry out of the equation, none of them matter. And as humans, and correct me if I'm wrong, we all want to matter. Maybe not necessarily to the grander world at large, you know, to, to change human history. But I think that we all want to change it in our own ways. And we all want to do it in our own little ways. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I love teaching. Is that, you know, even though I'm not the one who's, you know, being elected to office and making laws or being president or whatever, I'm helping these individuals who are coming to me for my expertise and helping them ask questions and to learn to find answers and because that's all that history is about in a lot of ways especially at the undergraduate level is learning to question the information that's coming at you and being able to put that information that you glean from your sources into a coherent argument and so learning how to make arguments from the base sources is incredibly important and that's one of the things that I love about teaching history is helping people to critically look at the world around them. One of my mottos that I love to live my life by is the unexamined life is not worth living. And history, when you do history right, and there are people who don't do history right, and they're still incredibly popular and wealthy. And this tea break had been brought to you by Harney and Sons. But if you do history right, it forces you to really confront the ugly and the beautiful truths about the world and the people around us. And hopefully you also are thinking about it and your own place in it as well. But yeah. So Kathy Parr is the one who brings it all together at the end. And she is the one who confronts it for the audience and bringing everything together and saying, yeah, this isn't right, this isn't fair, this isn't what we should be doing. And I feel it almost kind of sucks in the fact that basically no matter what Catherine Parr would have been like as an individual, this is the role that she gets in the play because she goes last. And so she has to be the one to kind of bring this all together and flip it on its head a bit. Because each of the other queens gets to have a bit more of their own, at least in terms of how the creators of the musical put it together, their own personalities come through and the aspects of their personalities that they chose to emphasize. You know, like Catherine of Aragon's stubbornness and her love of the Catholic religion, etc., <laughs> etc. Et um, but Kathy Parr gets to go at the end and bring everything together. Which, in some ways, makes a lot of sense, too, when you look at who she was historically. Um, she was finally the, the queen who was able to get Mary, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, and Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, put back into the succession. Because at this point in time, before her marriage to Henry, 
You know, Mary had been welcomed back at court, but she hadn't been in the succession. So technically, I mean, she's still a bastard up until she de-bastardizes herself when she becomes queen later on in 1553. But they were not eligible to take the throne after their brother Edward, even though they were, when they were born, born in wedlock. That's the whole beauty of annulling is that it goes back in time and says this never happened. And so anything that happened from that marriage, like children, uh, it's complicated. And so Catherine Parr actually, in real life, was the one who brought them together. And even though she was devoted to the reformed teachings, the most Protestant, uh, like at the very beginning, you know, each of the queens kind of sets down their own uh, criteria for who would win. And so Kathy Parr's like, and the winning contestant is the most Protestant. Protestant. Uh, and she would have been, actually, out of all of them. Anne Boleyn uh, would have been as well. But I think that Catherine Parr is much better known for it because when she was around longer and two she actually published she worked on translations of texts which i talked about in her uh, background as well and she got along with mary who especially in her later life is much more well known for being vehemently anti-protestant and mary loved her which is is a mark in her favor and she and Elizabeth got along really well, which I talked about in her background as well, how she actually was the one who was Elizabeth's guardian after Henry died. And she was the one who was able to bring them all together. I mean, not how we would understand it as a family, because that's also something that comes out in the show, too, that shows that as much as they did put a lot of thought by they being the creators into like how they wanted to bring it together and make this into a very feminist and you know girl power sort of romp there's no understanding of actually like motherhood at this particular point in time because uh, one of the jokes that Jane Seymour makes is that you know she was so looking forward to his first words and his first steps and not getting a good night's sleep for three years and it's just like that's not how it would have worked <laughs> as a mother uh, especially a noble or royal mother you would not have actually been the one to raise your own child um, apparently Anne Boleyn uh, rocked waves and tried to actually breastfeed Elizabeth herself which was something that just wasn't done there are some sources that talk about it and other ones that don't but basically as a early modern wealthy mother you would not have breastfed your own child. You would have hired a wet nurse for that. You would have hired rockers. You would have hired... The, I mean, this kid would have basically had their own household. You'd been in charge of it, but they would have had their own household. And if you were lucky or had that particular type of power, you could make sure that their household was kept close to yours. And you could go and visit them, which is one of the things that Anne did with Elizabeth, is that she visited her very often. But they were in separate households, which was the norm for aristocratic nobil nobility and royal families at the time. And so there's no way that she would have lost sleep. And also the fact that they would not have breastfed themselves because that was actually used... Breastfeeding a, your child was a way to kind of influence your fertility a bit. Because if you're breastfeeding, you typically don't conceive of another child right away and so if you're giving your child to someone else to nurse 
you are fertile again right away, which for noble aristocratic and royal families is incredibly important to make sure you can pump out those kids. Yay, heirs. Um, and so, yeah, that was incredibly important. And as much as having heirs was also important for uh, less wealthy families, they really couldn't afford to have someone come in and nurse their child for them. So they usually did it themselves. But yeah, so this understanding of motherhood really kind of wasn't a thing with the show that you don't really get in the musical itself. But I understand why they're not going to go and talk about that. But at least don't make that joke that is completely anachronistic. There's enough about the musical that's anachronistic enough, which is what we get with the final song. Well, it's not actually the final song because there is the, the Mega Six remix, which is I Don't Need Your Love remix, where they just... Uh, flow all the songs together and it is super fun and this is actually one that if you wanted to uh, you could go on YouTube and find them uh, at other venues not at uh, the Ordway for some reason they actually would encourage the audience members to take out their phone and film the last song and put it online but they don't do that at the Ordway there was no audio recording no video recording or anything like that available which is one of the reasons I'm really hoping that they're actually going to put a US Broadway cast album out at some point but anyway so six is where they all come together and they're like yeah you know what there is no happy end for us history doesn't work that way we can't go back and actually change it but we're here now as these fictionalized characters in this musical so you know what we're going to make our own ending. And that's what they do with the lyrics of Six. And so each of them get to go in order again and tell a little bit about what they would have done had Henry not intervened in their lives. And Ryan and I talk a lot about this actually in the discussion podcast, but I want to just kind of go over it a little bit. Uh, so we have Catherine of Aragon. You know, I love this because... She starts off saying that she doesn't want to go to a nunnery, but then in her happy ever after, she goes to a nunnery instead of marrying some other foreign prince or king or whatever. Uh, but yeah, so she packed her bags and moved into a nunnery, uh, joined the gospel choir. Our riffs were on fire at the top of the charts is where I'm going to stay. Uh, and so, yes, and we have her going off and doing her own thing in a nunnery, Anne Boleyn. Uh, we have this Greensleeves thread that keeps coming through. Greensleeves was a poem purportedly written by Henry VIII for Anne Boleyn. Not exactly accurate, but it is a fun legend that comes down to us, and it makes sense for a lot of people because Henry VIII was actually incredibly musically inclined, and he did actually write music, and he wrote poetry, and so that's something that he could have done, and so we like to think that he did, even though he didn't actually write this one. Um, but so he sent her green sleeves, and then we have and putting it on a sick beat. And then she's signed and she actually is a lyricist for Shakespeare. Shakespeare, P. Shakespeare. Oh yeah. Um, and then the Jane Seymour. I think that she's the only one who actually still marries Henry. <laughs> which makes sense. Um, yeah, she was the only one he truly loved. Rude. Uh, and she has a gaggle of children. And they are the Tudor Von Trapps. And... Then, she's just kidding, you know, they're called the Roiling Stones. Um, Anne of Cleves, 
stays in the Holy Roman Empire. She hangs out with Holbein and his artsy house people and goes and has fun. Basically, the only thing that's changed is where she's at, not necessarily uh, what she's doing. So her life doesn't really change much at all. Um, Catherine Howard is not sexually abused, which is great. Uh, she teaches herself music. Kathy Parr, once again, is left to be the one who brings them all together. So she hears every song and each remix and brings them all together and they lay down an album and then they don't need Henry. All they need is each other. And yes, it's corny, but in the moment, it is so much fun. And then they... And then it just it is it's just it's just so much fun and that really is kind of the end of the show they were fighting to have their stories told and i love the use of herstory uh that's something that kathy parr says you know they're lost in his story they're lost in history and they wanted to make it into herstory which does actually date back it's so weird everything that i talk about in this podcast so far has links to the women's liberation movement in the 60s and 70s and this very much so does uh in terms of history that was something that once women's uh studies kind of came to be in the 60s and 70s that was how a lot of people within the field started referring to their studies as herstory because for so long you know it had been the study of men and what did men do and how these women's connections were to men so many times in history it has been so difficult to research women's lives because Kathy Parr's right without their husbands they disappear in the record with how their lives have been approached throughout history for the most part. If you look at how when a woman married, she automatically took her husband's name and she didn't have one of her own anymore. And, you know, then she just because so-and-so and wife. And then without their husbands, we don't really have much in terms of what these women's lives were like and that's what herstory was fighting against in trying to make these women's lives and experiences visible because just because they weren't recorded at the time doesn't make them not important and learning their stories tells us so much more about what life was like for even royal people as well, because there actually are queens going far enough back that we don't know a whole lot about. If you look on Wikipedia, now of course, academic knowledge is more than what's on Wikipedia. But just to give you a general idea, you can look at you know some medieval queens and they, the only snippets that they have of their lives are which children they had, did those children survive? Usually, depending on where you're looking, were those children boys? Okay, cool. Then those are the ones we know about. And then there might have been three daughters. And that's really it. Like, they married so-and-so. They had this many children. Three of them were boys. And these are their boys' names. And they married so-and-so and then had these many children. And that's really all we know. Now, that's 
a lot of it's down to the sources that come down to us because family trees or uh, baptismal records or things like that really tended to focus on the children. Obviously, when you have a child, these big life breaking moments when you get married, when you have your children and when you die. And that's it for a lot of women in history. And we're lucky if we even have that. Even queens who should have more because a lot of times they witness charters or they are patrons for these particular schools or religious houses. We might have some of those left or we might just have it from hearsay or different chroniclers that mention it that it happened at the time, but then that's it. And so herstory was revolutionary in its approach and completely shifted how historians have studied history and approached their field. Well, it should. Some it hasn't, and you can actually see some of these people. I'm not going to name names or subtweet. Is that what this would be? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm not going to name names and, you know, drag these people's names through the mud, but looking at these types of approaches should be how you approach history. Because uh, in the 70s, you know, we have not just women's history that comes out. You know, the study of gender became incredibly important and became a thing. We also have the study of race. We have the study of class. And so race, class, and gender are kind of like the holy trinity in terms of how you should study history. If you're not including those three things in what you do, you're doing it wrong. I mean, no matter what your field is, it could be diplomatic history in the 20th century United States, or it can be the study of crocodiles and how animals were used uh, in the early modern period. Because race, class, and gender are so tied to the human experience that if you're not even at the very least considering those places for analyses, then you're not really even thinking about trying to get the whole picture. But that is a lecture for another time, as we are still talking about six. And actually, I think, I think we're done. This is weird. It's been weeks, a month and a half now in the making. Wow. How do you feel? Are you going to go and see it? I really hope you do. I mean, even if you have had the spoilers here, which <laughs> you have, you should go and see it. It is such an amazing experience. If you have any interest at all in looking at Tudor history, or even just women's history, or anything like this in general, or you just like fun pop music, go. It is well worth it. I had the, the most interesting experience last night of people who were interested in my dissertation topic. Uh, some of the ladies next to me were talking, they were uh, kind of grumbling about like, oh man, we don't even get to have the real cast because these two alternates are playing. I'm like, no, no, they're great. It's fine. It'll be wonderful. And they're like, oh, you've seen this before? I'm like, oh yeah, this is my third time. And one of the ladies is like, so is it because the first two times didn't stick or because it's just that good? I'm like, well, it is just that good. And also this is my dissertation topic research, you know, specifically looking at queenship in the Tudor period, and I love looking at the intersections of pop culture and history. And so then they were asking me questions, and then two younger ladies on my other side were like, okay, we're just creeping in here, but oh my god, we have to know more about this. And so I was telling them about my dissertation topic, and they're like, so this is actually going to be a book that we can buy? 
<laughs> and they're like, we are a bit obsessed with the Tudor Queens. And I'm like, holy crap, this is giving me hope, giving me life that people are not just ignoring history, that people are into it. And it makes me so glad in, you know, my heart grew three sizes last night. <laughs> uh that people are interested in this stuff and it's not just the military history that I grew up with because my dad is a big he's an armchair historian he's a history buff and he loves looking at uh like world war one world war two uh military history and so that's what I thought that if you liked history that's what you read and so it it gives me life and invigorates me in what I'm doing to hear that no People are interested in the Tudor Queens. People are interested in... And when I said I'm also working on the Stuart period as well, they're like... <gasps> like, actual squeal of delight. And it's it was just so invigorating. So, you know, hug a historian is basically what I'm saying. Hashtag hug a historian today. <laughs> but anyway, so... Uh, this will be the last live podcast that I'm going to be recording for you, and uh, actually until next year. So yeah, hit me up, throw me a comment or two on the website if you can to let me know what you're thinking maybe we should go after next. Uh, my thought process is if I can't get anything else going, I want to look at, like I've been teasing before, about White Queen, White Princess, and Spanish Princess, so I could talk more about Catalina de Aragon, whom I love so much. Or I was also thinking of doing uh, some Disney, because Disney's cool. Um, I was thinking, like, maybe looking at Brave, or... I haven't actually seen Sleeping Beauty since I was a kid. Rapunzel could be fun, and looking at some of the how the history is portrayed in these period pieces, but not necessarily trying to teach you history, which is actually all about what this podcast is doing. So... Uh, stay tuned, and I hope that we are going to continue into the new year, into 2020, uh, and exploring more of these concepts together. So thank you so much uh, for tuning into History Pop this year, where we talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. <laughs> and that uh, you also really enjoy the next couple of podcasts uh, with the discussion about six with my historian thespian friend and yeah uh, have a very happy holiday season and happy new year to you and all of yours i wish you nothing but wonderful things in the coming year so thank you so much it has been truly a pleasure this has been courtney for history pop take care this has been written and performed by Courtney Herbert. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a